This podcast is part of the No Phony Podcast Network, the home of independent awesomeness. Did Ronald Reagan unwittingly improve punk in the 1980s? Let's find out. Once again, it's time for the idiots. An objective defense of the 80s. From a couple of idiots. Welcome back to another episode of The Idiots, an objective defense of 1980s pop culture from a couple of idiots. My name's Will, and joining me as always is my friend and my co-host, Ray. I've been drinking all day and only eaten an ice cream sandwich so far, so (laughs) let's see where this goes. Now I feel like we should be on Facebook Live. Why should I be the only one to have access to this quality entertainment? Streaming on demand. (laughs) Today on the show, we're going to be talking about punk rock. Joining us again is a, one of our first guests from last year, October of 2019, Professor Kevin Matson. He's going to be talking about his new book that just came out, We're Not Here to Entertain, Punk Rock, Ronald Reagan, and the Real Culture War of 1980s America. What was the fake culture war? Maybe we should ask him that. That should be our first question. Uh, yeah, I think that was the battle against uh, neon spandex. <laughs> I thought you were going to say the battle of the network stars. No, that would be funny too, though. (laughs) (laughs) All right, but hey, uh, don't forget to like and subscribe and rate and review and do all those cool things you can to keep in touch with the idiots. Yeah, and uh, and leave a note in your mailbox for the the mailman so that he can check us out too. (laughs) And remember to put the flag up because otherwise they won't know. Yeah, he won't take it. He'll he'll just think it's a note from a neighbor about uh, something nice you did for him. Yeah, they're not allowed to take it. All right, hey, let's get caught up on 80s news. There is so much 80s news, some people would say too much, but not us. We would never say that. Okay, hey, uh, this is an update to a story we just did last week. So we were speculating on the somewhat secretive uh, production that was being executive produced and also starring Jennifer Grey. Uh, We knew it was a dancing film, and now it's been confirmed by Lionsgate's CEO that the film is, in fact, a sequel to Dirty Dancing. That's super cool. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Have they revealed who's going to be in this thing other than her yet? uh, No. All we have is a quote from the CEO saying it will be exactly the kind of romantic, nostalgic movie that the franchise's fans have been waiting for. Ooh la la. Yeah. Other than that, we don't know a whole lot. Of course, we knew, we talked about last week, it's set in the 1990s, so we know it's set about, what, 40 or so years after the original, which puts Baby at around the age that Jennifer Grey is. Huh. (laughs) (laughs) Is this what a day's worth of beer and an ice cream sandwich would get me? Uh, All right, fine. Let me try and be better. Okay. Let me me think about this for a second. So if we don't know who's in it... Yeah. do you think they'll switch it from dirty dancing to like ballroom dancing or something oh. just to twist it? Hmm. Maybe it'll be Lombada or the dance of love. Oh, or break dancing. All right. I'd be into that. If it, or you know oh. what? I'm going to say if I was in charge, I'd have Boogaloo shrimp in this thing mm-hmm. and it'd be break dancing oh. and he'd be trying to bring it back from the dead Ooh. in the nineties. The secret breaking sequel crossover. This would, this would be the three peak <laughs> for breaking. That would be amazing. 
But, you know, since Breaking was on the outs, I'm thinking the popular dance style of the 90s would have been the Macarena. So could this just be all about the Macarena, hmm. the whole thing? <laughs> that would be just as good. You know, I could see her in, in the lake with someone else training, and they're in the lake doing the Macarena. <laughs> do but they the can't macarena. get it right. <laughs> Keep oh, that's funny. Uh, Warm Bodies director Jonathan Levin, I'm going to see Levin, is uh, directing this project with a screenplay by Mickey Daughtry and Tobias Iconis. Iaconis. Oh, boy. In any case, so yeah, so uh, we know about the production team, but that's about it. A lot of big questions. Of course, we talked about last time that they also, there is a sequel to Dirty Dancing. So this is a three-peat for Dirty Dancing, too. So it Mm. really might be a great uh, triple crossover for these films, like you're suggesting. Uh, Havana Nights, uh, which grossed uh, $28 worldwide, a fraction of what uh, the original Dirty Dancing from 1987 grossed. I hope it has nothing to do with the original now. <laughs> I hope it's about a housewife in the suburbs. <laughs> she's just miserable, and she just daydreams about how she used to be cool back in the 60s. Oh, maybe that was a dream. It's it's that trope. She wakes yeah. up. She had been just dreaming of Patrick Swayze. Yeah. Who doesn't dream about Patrick Swayze? <laughs> <laughs> now I'm thinking about other crossovers. Can we, you know, since we lost Mr. Swayze tragically some years ago, can we have a ghost... Uh, Maybe it's sort of a ghost mashup where she's, oh, he's in whoopee, it. Whoopi shows up. Yeah. She, <laughs> Patrick's possessed her again, like that pottery scene, but now he's yeah. able to dance with Jennifer Grey. And they do the pottery scene with Jennifer Grey. <laughs> in the lake. They got to be in the lake, though. But she's like totally creeped out by it. <laughs> uh, so, hey, Lionsgate, if you're listening... We got your, we got one of these, or any parts of these would be an amazing <laughs> blockbuster. All right, another 80s news. Speaking of uh, sequels, um, we have just learned via Deadline that uh, one of the most beloved television comedies is making a comeback. We've got a Who's the Boss sequel in development at Sony Pictures Television. And we know that at least two of the main characters, Tony Danza and Alyssa Milano, are on board to reprise their roles as Tony and Samantha Miscelli. Were you a fan of this show back in the day? Uh, I think that show was great. Yep. It was, it was really good. It was fun to watch. Yeah. Yeah, I watched it. My family and I watched it. It ran on ABC for 196 episodes from 1984 to 1992, averaging more than 33 million live viewers per episode. Holy moly. I mean, nobody does that now. Everything's on. No one watches anything live, really. I don't no, think. Not anymore. Yeah. I mean, we don't even have cable TV now that I think about it. We couldn't, I think. Well, on Hulu, you could watch some things live. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. So I, I've heard that this is about uh, Grandpa Tony. Oh, he's a grandfather now. And Samantha, yep. Samantha's daughter identifies as a table. <laughs> <laughs> is she a woke table? She's a woke table. <laughs> now I, you know, I realize now that you and I have inside jokes that we cut out of the show. Yeah. Now I feel like we need to add them back in. Yes. I haven't heard that rumor. I don't know what this is about. We do know that it's going to take place 30 years after the show, but it is 30 years after the show, so... So he gets to play the part of Mona now. Oh, I see. You just mean... (laughs) You just mean, like, the archetype of the, you know, patriarch of the family now. Right. Well, he gets to get all the the funny jokes in about sex because he's old now. I see. What I thought you meant was he was transitioning. Oh, no, no. Not Tony. Since... Uh, he he's not woke at all. Since Samantha's a table, 
No, Samantha's not the table. Oh. Her daughter's the table. Oh, Come Samantha's on. daughter's the table. How dare me? That's crazy. And she's totally cool with that. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately. So there's all kinds of there's all kinds of conversations with the principal and stuff about how, you know, you're uh holding my daughter back because she's a table. <laughs> you know. All right, isn't that what all sitcoms are now? Yes. Yes, right. All about woke tables and splinters. We don't know to what extent Judith Light and uh, Danny Pintaro will be in the show, but uh, we do know from uh, Deadline that they're supportive of the new series and hope that there may be some creative way to bring them back at some point. Of course, unfortunately lost Catherine Hellman, who played uh, Mona, early last year. So, hey, in probably the most exciting 80... I don't know what that last story was. <laughs> became. But fine, it's you fine. Knew, you, you knew I was going to say when that. You, when you drink beer all day and have an ice cream sandwich, it all goes in. It all goes into the yeah, show. Yeah. So this is the most exciting 80s news for us this week. Good news! Bill and Ted face the music. Not only do we know it was when it was coming out, it's now coming out a few days even sooner than that. So we learned just a, a week or so ago that it was coming out Labor Day weekend, but now it's going to be released one week earlier on August 28th. So it looks like this move was to avoid competing with uh, Mulan, which we learned is coming out on Disney Plus on September 4th. That probably is part of the calculus, you know, to the extent you can. You don't want to compete with anybody, even if you think you might beat them. People are limited in what they're going to rent in a day or whatever. On a yeah. weekend, so. Well, I, I also called this one. I said Bill and Ted would jump back into the fray and oh. say they're coming out sooner. Oh, my goodness. You're freaking me out now. I did. I called this one. This is like Matrix-level stuff. So a few weeks ago, you talked about George Lucas coming to mm -hmm. save Star Wars, and we learned what, a week or so ago, he, if you believe the rumors, he is he coming is. back. I, he's back. I wonder he's going to save Star Wars. I, I, I don't know if that's going to save anything. I've already said he's going to save Star Wars, so it must be true. Well, yeah. Hey, I, I, you're an oracle at this point. <laughs> I don't know how I can doubt you. And then, yeah, you predicted that they would, in fact, pull some kind of thing like this. Yeah, that was like two months ago you said that. Whenever they announced the hmm. the date it was coming out, I said, they're going to push this thing forward to jump everybody. Yeah. And they did. And I'm I'm excited. I want to see this movie. Yes. You know, it's interesting. Bill and Ted was like one of the many films we were excited about this year. And very, I don't want to say very quickly, you know, because nothing happens quickly anymore <laughs> in this world that we live in. But over the period of the months and weeks that folks were trying to figure out, it quickly for me became the, the film that I was most excited to see come out. Yeah. So this is really cool. Well, you know what? I, I don't know if it's because they did a great job of marketing because they're all over Facebook these other movies, they don't do nothing. They're just sitting there like, oh, Tenet's going to be such a great movie. I don't even know what that movie's about. Yeah. But Bill and Ted have been all over Facebook. I've seen ad after ad, and I've seen those guys just popping up here and there. They've right. done a great job of marketing. Every other movie stinks at it. Yeah, and when you say like the Ghostbusters and Tenet, we're looking forward to those films, but there is something you're right about the advertising that sort of takes the fans for granted. Like, they know we'll be there. Yeah. But Bill and Ted, starting a few years ago when they decided they were going to do it, been teasing it in a way that reminds me of, uh, like, 1989's Batman. You saw little things here and there, and you just oh yeah, just were, you know, clamoring for as much information as you could get about it, leading up to the, you know, the trailer and the most recent uh, shift in the release date. You're right. Again. So I say this is the blockbuster of the year. There you go, guys. Alex, Keanu. You can bank on that because yeah. Ray's, I don't know. He's, he's, yeah, go buy a Porsche. 
<laughs> see, see, finally, Keanu's making it big. We've wanted it for him yeah. all these years. Alex, go buy another Porsche. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so hey, look, the 80s is not going anywhere. Unless if, well, you know what, I'm, I'm, I want to vent a little bit about the Podcast of the Year Awards. Ooh, but well, let's do that too. Let's vent. <laughs> Can we do that right now? Yeah, let's do it right now. That's 80s news. <laughs> it is. It's 80s non-news in a sense. <laughs> I was going to say, look, all this 80s news is just so indicative of how 80s pop culture is here to stay. But we did not get nominated for a Podcast Year of the Award in any of our categories, three of them, uh, including comedy and a separate category for society and culture. But in society and culture, that's our one. That's our jam right there. Because mm-hmm. we happen to be funny and all those other things. But but in society and culture, a 90s podcast made it. I want to say 80s is here to stay with all this news, but what does this mean? Middle-aged folks are either slipping away or they don't understand that you got to vote for these things when your podcast asks you to vote. I, I don't know what it means. All I can say is the fix is in. That's all I got to say mm-hmm. about it. You know, you say that. And since you're the oracle of all things pop culture... On the Podcast of the Year Awards Twitter feed, early today before they announced the slate, they posted this cryptic message that said, hey, you five people, you five uh, podcasts out there that tried to cheat, we found out, we saw what you were doing, we caught you, not cool, you've been banned for life. Were we one of those? (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe that's what happened. Did we cheat? Because I didn't do it. (laughs) I don't even know how you could cheat. I mean, I think there were some rules against not like not using uh, like some kind of like uh, bots maybe to um, create votes, maybe something like that. I don't know. Even how you I, would do I was going to say, I wouldn't even know how to do that. So yeah. that's uh, the only thing I could think. But no, I don't know. All I can say is, is they're not uh, they're not smart enough to realize that our podcast is good. So I don't want their award. So that's what I'm going to say. Mm. Well, except for the folks at this stage. The way we get nominated is based on our, it's from our listeners. Yeah, I think, I think they discounted our listeners and yeah, I'm going to go with that. Mm. So I'm just going to go find an old T-ball trophy from when I was a kid. I'm mm. going to give us our own trophy for podcast of the year. Uh, you know, <laughs> I trust that Ray will do this. <laughs> so uh, look forward to seeing the picture of that. Uh, so whatever, uh, whatever. Poor, okay. poor Will is distraught. He works so hard on trying to get us a trophy. I just wanted the trophy, man. <laughs> we just we just wanted the goddamn trophy. <laughs> we, that's so hard. We built a shelf. There's only the category of 1980s podcasts. How many could there be? <laughs> I mean, seriously. That would be so sad <laughs> if that was the category. 1980s podcasts. Oh, man. Okay, hey. Lots of more pleasant things. Uh, so a 1980s property uh, is back again. Another one. This time we've learned that Spyglass Media Group has teamed with James Wan's company. You know James Wan. He did the uh, Saw, original Saw. He did Insidious. He did uh, Conjuring. Most recently, he did uh, Aquaman. He directed that. And that's, you know, the biggest blockbuster uh, DC has ever had as as far as films go. Was it good? It was pretty good. (laughs) It was pretty good, actually. But now we've learned that James Wan, his company, is developing a film based on the 1980s classic action series, Knight Rider. Ooh, tell me more. Well, if you remember, it aired on NBC from 82 to 86 and starred, launched, boosted, we didn't know this guy until then, William Daniels, the guy who did the voice of the car, boosted his career. (laughs) Well, and also David Hasselhoff. Oh, yeah, yeah. You mean that guy that sang in Germany? Yeah, the guy who sang at the Berlin Wall. Yeah. Before that, he was on a TV show called Knight Rider. Yeah. What are we doing here? What's happening? 
I don't know. I'm half out of my mind on ice cream yeah. sandwiches and beer. You're supposed to hold this together. I like how you led with the ice cream sandwiches. I'm half out of my mind on ice cream sandwiches. <laughs> Kids, stay off the sandwiches. They're bad news. Of course, this launched the career of David Hasselhoff. William Daniel was already an established actor by then with a great voice. I wish we could get William Daniel's voice on our cars, on our Siri and all that stuff. That would oh, be a voice yeah, to have. He'd be, a, he'd be great for the mm. intro to the show. It's time for the idiot. Oh, that. I gotta see if he's alive. Oh no! Step one: <laughs> get a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> Plot details for the for this latest version of Knight Rider being kept under wraps, but Deadline reports that it will be what they're hearing is that it will be a present day take on uh, the show that will maintain the tone of the original. Now, of course, the biggest question will be: Will the Hoff make an appearance? You can guarantee he's trying to get in there. I want him to be. In it. Could he be the new voice of Kit? No, not the voice. You want him to be Michael Knight? Yeah, I want him to be Michael Knight. There's no reason not to. He already knows how to do it. Yeah. The only, the real question is, are they going to monkey with the car? Yeah, that would be kind of sad. Because at this point, that car is going to be 30 something years old. Yeah. It was like a, what, a tricked out Camaro? No, Trans Am. Yeah. If you're cruising around in that today, people are going to notice. They're going to be like, oh, your state of the art car is like, 35 years old. Yeah. It's got an eight track in it. Mm. <laughs> and to have, Wait, that, you know what? Let's make it a comedy. Boom. I'm in. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah. One of those parodies like the Baywatch one yeah, or something. Yeah. Like I want that. this to be a comedy. No, no, no. It would be nice to have. I don't want to say it has to be dark like Batman or something like that, but dark comedy. <laughs> I'm in. All right. Is that it? I think that's 80s news. Dun, 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 dun. As we just mentioned a few moments ago, we did not make it to the final slate of nominees for a Podcast of the Year award. And while that's disappointing, we are fortunate and grateful to have so many uh, supportive uh, listeners that and followers on Facebook and, other, uh, and elsewhere that did nominate us. And as promised, we are awarding a T-shirt to one of those uh, supportive uh, listeners uh, at random, and our randomly chosen winner for the t-shirt is Brian Spreaker, who nominated us. Thank you so much, Brian. If you haven't already, message us on Facebook or email us at info at the uh, so we can work out the details. That's it, right? That's, that's all we yeah, have to uh, say. Then you just have to say, uh, hey, stay tuned, because we're going to talk to Kevin in a minute. All right, there you go. What he said. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> that was punk rock. <laughs> He's, he slammed a bunch of beers, ate a ice cream sandwich. <laughs> That's punk rock living right there. Our guest today is the Connor Study Professor of Contemporary History at Ohio University. Additionally, he's a prolific writer with articles having appeared in a number of publications, including The Nation and The Guardian. And he's authored a number of books, including his very latest, We're Not Here to Entertain, Punk Rock, Ronald Reagan, and The Real Culture War of 1980s America. It's a fun and fascinating examination of the evolution of punk rock and its relationship to politics throughout our favorite decade. 
And now you can get it on Amazon and everywhere books are sold. Please welcome back to the show, Dr. Kevin Matson. Hey, Kevin. Good to be here. The last time we spoke, you know, you were teasing that this, you, you, had, you were working on this book that was to come out at some point in the future. And here we are, and your book has just come out. And of course, we're talking about uh, We Are Not Here to Entertain, punk rock Ronald Reagan in the real culture war of 1980s America. The episode that you appeared on last time was somewhat controversial for us because Ray <laughs> insisted that the clash was not punk rock. And we got a lot of people writing in and calling or emailing us about huh. how dare he? Yeah, I got oh, yeah. a lot of flack for that one. Wow. What were people why why were people objecting to the to the statement? They just didn't like my opinion that they weren't punk. They all agreed with you. Yeah, they, they believe Clash is punk. And even after they even as they evolved, they continued to be punk. But they couldn't have a civil discussion about it. They just <laughs> wanted to yell about it, so I never got to explain anything to them. Yeah. And some people wanted to come on the air just to yell at Ray. <laughs> but we didn't have any of that. And the other thing I wanted to mention was, I think I have a slightly better understanding of punk rock since we last spoke, you know, because Ray and I have continued our discussions, and of course because uh, I was able to uh, read your book ahead of time here. And the biggest thing I learned was some of the misunderstandings I had about it last time we spoke was just sort of this bleeding together for me of what happened in the 70s versus the 80s. So what was happening in music and otherwise that uh, influenced punk as we transitioned from the 1970s to the 1980s? Yeah, well, so I start off in 1979, and, and it really feels like in that year that there's a kind of break in the longer history of punk. Um, you know, now you have uh, the big success story of 1979 is Blondie. Um, Blondie came out of CBGB's, was a punk band, but what got famous from playing a disco song. Mm. Um, and so uh, th that's one thing that you're seeing shifting in 79 is that some people are breaking big um, and becoming kind of rock stars unto themselves. Um, so, you know, and I think that what also obviously happens soon thereafter is that Ronald Reagan gets elected as president. Uh, and the political climate in the country changes drastically. Um, there's also, it's important to note that I think one of the opening points that a lot of young punks had in, in early 1980s was that the record industry was just doing so poorly. Um, it was releasing tons of stuff still, but everything was kind of crashing. Nothing was seemingly getting an audience. So there seemed to be this kind of opening and this feeling that I think some of it is also generational. Um, I mean, most of the people who were coming into the scene in, in 1980 would be, you know, 16 years old. And kind of looking at people like Patti Smith or Richard Hell as not necessarily a generation apart, but there there seemed to be a kind of generational shift. Um, and, you know, of course, very often the, the, the elders of punk frowned upon um, the, the younger punks that were coming into scenes. That, that's especially, you can see that uh, happening with the Minutemen and Black Flag in the California scene. Um, they, they got a kind of, you know, gruff treatment by people who had been around for a long time, who had been involved in, in you know, music back in 1976, 77. And um, there was, I guess, you know, kind of a generational feel to the shift. Um, but again, it's, I think there, there were these opportunities that opened up that um, you can really kind of pinpoint mm. happening around 1979 to 1980. I, I thought it was interesting that you pointed out this idea that, you know, another sort of, uh, in contrast to music from the 70s, as these grew, as the, we grew from smaller venues, you know, in the 60s, et cetera, into the arena rock of the 1970s, things became more impersonal. 
And once again, punk rock fad that found this opportunity opportunity to be sort of antithetical to what was happening there. Can you talk about the relationship of, between the audience and, and performers that was in, in punk that was different than other prior eras of music? You know, arena rock really grew out of the festivals that were a big thing in the late 1960s, most famously Woodstock and Altamont. Um, they were usually, you know, shows performed in big stadiums that were not really built to um, have such things occur. So there was, mm. there was this kind of sound quality to arena rock that was always kind of off um, sounding. Um, and, but, you know, I, reading through a bunch of um, letters, uh, zines, um, people who were, you know, kind of in, in, coming into the scene in 79, 1980, who that's their major enemy is arena rock. Right. They felt small. They felt like the, you know, the performers were like these little dots, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. far away. Uh, and you were usually in this kind of cavernous setting. I remember when I went to my first Kiss concert um, that my, I had my father bring me to. Um, and it was just that feeling of like you were you, your, your presence didn't really matter. I mean, they wanted applause. Right. And, and the applause was given. But your presence wasn't really recognized. And I think that, you know, the the, the smaller venues. Um, that gave, a, yeah, a much more personal feel to it. There was much more, and this is ironic, obviously, in the, in the day and age we live, there was much more face-to-face interaction. And the, and the wall that existed um, between band and audience uh, in arena rock was just crashed. Um, people, you know, kids would get up on stage and dance around, very often, you know, knocking the guitar while the guitar player was trying to play. And that was seen as something that was good, um, healthy. Uh, it showed a kind of vitality, whereas arena rock just seemed to, you know, cultivate these these celebrities that were, you know, marched out in front of you in a way that you you really couldn't relate to, um, or at least a number of people I think found it hard to relate to. Yeah, the only thing I can say about that is I think arena rock was you looked at them and you wished you were them, and I think with punk you were the same as the band. I think that's the difference. Like even in your book when Henry. Uh, points out that he's not like David Lee Roth. Well, I'm looking at David Lee Roth and I'm like, I want to be that guy. Whereas if I saw Henry, I'm like, I kind of am that guy. You know what I mean? (laughs) So that's the difference. I like them both. They're different, but I like them both. No, that's a good, I I agree with you. That idea. I mean, there was a real, I mean, punk was really a rejection of rock stardom. Um, and including on the part of the performers, but also, as you just said, it's, it's on the part of the people who are in the audience. No longer were young kids saying, you know, or at least in the subset of kids, were they saying, you know, I want to be um, that big rock star. They were basically saying, you know, screw them. You know, I mean, make our, make, let's make our own music. Let's go into a basement, you know, play our instruments and we'll have an audience of 15, but it'll be more fun than, than being drowned out by arena rock. Yeah, you know, as an outsider, you know, again, learning about punk now and being a real distant fan in the 1980s when it was occurring, again, this idea that seeing stage diving and folks jumping on stage, to me, it seemed like, you know, a threat, a possible, you know, aggression towards the performer. But thinking about, you know, the and since I'm wearing my Fear t-shirt, thinking about the, the uh, you know, infamous now uh, performance uh, of Fear on Saturday Night Live, I feel like I was would be more. My reaction would have been more akin to those that were there, those folks that were concerned for their safety. So it is surprising to me that that was welcomed and part of the energy and you know sort of uh, part of the performance was the audience uh, uh, participation. I know you talk about uh, what was it the one group that uh, was encouraged to record their album live because of the energy they got from the audience um, that it would have been flat felt flat otherwise. 
the characterization of slam dancing as violent was was made, you know, when people were slam dancing, obviously. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I noted was, you know, when people were interviewed, even by like kind of alternative newspapers or whatever, and they get the question, oh, this looks really violent, this you know, all that sort of stuff. Most of, most of the kids would just say, no, there's actually unspoken rules here. Mm. Like if someone falls, falls over, you pick them up. You don't step on them, um, which would be the violent thing to do. There was this kind of, you know, s- synergy and energy that, that people in the audience had. Um, and there was, there, like I said, there were some unspoken rules there. Um, you always had, you know, dumb, violent punk kids. I mean, those were always there. Um, uh, and, but, you know, th- th- I think in the 80s, what you had was a capacity to to kind of create new scenes and try to keep them. And that was one of the aims and ambitions of almost every band. Keep those scenes, um, you know, open so new people could come in, but also wary about the possibilities that you get what, you know, Jello Biafra once called, you know, Nazi punks. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and part of this story in the book is how, in fact, by the time that you get to 1984 and 1985, you're starting to see even more skinheads who are right. kind of into a fascist politics start to really engage the scenes and, and in essence, ruin them for, for so many people. Yeah, I recently heard uh, Kate Schellenbach, who was the original drummer for the Beastie Boys, making a, an ultimately formed Luscious Jackson, making a comment that when the Beastie Boys were doing punk still at CBGB's, you know, it was great at the beginning, and then at some point, and it was a great escape from the bullies of high school, and then at some point, the bullies shaved their heads and showed up at the clubs and started, <laughs> quote, slam dancing, and then they said, that's it, we were done. Yeah, uh, yeah no, that, that, that's exactly right. And, you know, the Beastie Boys are one of those bands that are, you know, people have the association uh, with being, you know, white rap, and yet, you know, you can go back and, and see their early stuff and um, see how it's definitely, you know, what some people would call hardcore punk. Oh yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I'll I'll say one other one other thing is that um, I think that you know you brought up um, Beastie Boys and CBGBs. What made punk quite different during the 1980s was how how much it spread. It was no longer you know in the frame of mind of oh my god, only good things come out of New York City or only good things come out of Los Angeles. It was again you know people playing in places like Tulsa, Oklahoma, playing in states like Florida, where you just wouldn't expect this sort of thing. Um, and that that also kind of really gave it a very, very different feel. Um, and I think people don't recognize how much it spread. Um, and that's one of the things I wanted to write about in the book was that, you know, this stuff was 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 spreading. It wasn't gigantic or anything like that, but it was it was much, much more prevalent than, than I think a lot of people realized at the time. Uh, when we when we last talked, uh, one of the questions I put to you was whether punk rock was political or necessarily political. And um I think your answer was not necessarily, um, because, you know, we have folks that uh, do make some commentary, and then you have folks, again, the, the best examples I could think of are really from the 70s, thinking about folks that seem to sing more about things that were more nonsensical, like the Ramones. But that said, you know, the early examples you give of, of punk, and many of the examples that you talk about in the book, like uh, Dead Kennedys, Circle Jerks, Minutemen, did... Uh, uh, punk was an opportunity for them to, you know, vent uh, frustrations and anxieties about things that were on the minds of young people, like uh, nuclear threat, the rise of conservatism. The one thing that I'd add to your list, which is a good list, is um, the reinstitution of the of selective service and the possibility of a draft. Right. Um, and that's, that's freaking out a lot of people because they're seeing what's going on with the Soviet Union and Afghanistan. And, and a lot of young kids were thinking, oh, you know, I might get drafted to fight in a war that I'm not really sure if I agree with. And I, I remember myself um, getting notes from the Selective Service um, uh, Administration saying, you know, you haven't you haven't registered for the draft. Mm-hmm. And 
we're going to set up your court date and all this sort of stuff. And I'd show it to my mom and she'd freak out. Right. Mm -hmm. She's no, this is a good idea. And I was like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to sign up. I'm just not going to sign up trust the leadership of the country at this time, um, not to send us off to a, you know, a, a stupid war. Um, and, you know, uh, so, I mean, just to add to your list, I mean, the nuclear threat was obviously probably the most obvious thing, uh, the most obvious political issue. But the reinstitution of, of selective service was, was really important, especially in the very early 80s. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I went ahead and signed up. Because I just figured I'd go to Canada if they ever drafted me. <laughs> yeah, it's you're right, Ray. I remember even in the late '80s. So I think mm -hmm. I think by the time of the late '80s, it was automatic or something when you got your driver's license. No, you you still had to sign up. Yeah. Okay, so maybe at the DMV they asked, "Do you want to do it?" I think that's what it was then. Because I remember just doing it too. Well, and they they also you know Reagan tried to to, to point out student loans and and zero in on student mm -hmm. loans. Thing, unless you get, you know, unless you're registered, you're not going to get any of these benefits. Right. So yeah, all sorts of different ways to pressure uh, kids into signing up. Yeah. I remember when the Persian Gulf War broke out, I was like, oh no, I hope they have enough soldiers. Uh, <laughs> of course, feeling embarrassed at the same time because my dad fought in Vietnam and he volunteered to fight in Vietnam. So we'd have both wow. been in Canada. So we could have done the show from up there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We would have become friends a long time ago. So before we started the show, you pointed out my fear t-shirt and I said, I have a theory why it seems like fear, you know, you talk about the performance on Saturday Night Live we mentioned, but I don't believe we hear much about fear otherwise. Again, to a lay person, fear sort of lingers large in uh, the canon of punk rock. But, you know, your book focuses on the relationship of, of, of politics uh, to punk rock and fear. Uh, I don't I want to say, I don't want to say it's anomalous because it probably wasn't, but it was more frivolous, I guess, in the, in the, in its, the notions that it's saying about, you know, living in the city, maybe, you know, sort of gets to some ironic, uh, you know, discussion about what it would be to be a New Yorker. But other than that, they, they didn't have the, maybe the depth of, uh, you know, material that some other groups had. Yeah, no, absolutely. The, the, I'll point out that fear does reappear later in the story because Lee Ving, mm. the lead singer, who's, you know, kind of one of those, I think, easily, um, you know, iconic uh, uh, people uh, in, in the leadership of some punk circles. Um, he breaks big in, well, not breaks big, right. but he breaks into Hollywood um, and he starts starring in movies, bit parts, nothing, you know, he doesn't become a major significant actor. But I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of people were, were suspicious as to, is that, was that what he was always after? I mean, this right. comes back, to our, you know, not wanting, not wanting fame and celebrityhood, right? Um, and this seemed to be the sort of guy who, who was that. And, you know, they were also, I mean, there are political messages in some of Fear's songs, but they're very much more highly ironic, like, let's have a war. Mm. Um, if you ever get a chance to listen to that again, mm -hmm. it's seemingly a critique of war, but yet it's also kind of like a, a, a really heavily ironic thing going on there. And the fact that, you know, I mean, Fear was, was a, a lot of people call, you know, drunk punks um, and didn't necessarily, and I think, you know, during the 80s, throughout the 80s, um, it the straight edge stuff didn't go, take off everywhere, but it mm -hmm. became prevalent. Um, and there was a real rejection of drugs again, back to, you know, the, no more dead rock stars. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's an important part of, of why probably a band like fear was kind of, you know, tolerated in some ways. Mm -hmm. They will, I, I'll point out, play a rock against Reagan um, on the, on the national mall. Um, so, I mean, they, they, you know, they did have some, 
kind of political affiliations, but you were always left scratching your head when you <laughs> do you do you are you really believe the stuff that yeah. you're saying, or is this just kind of shock and sensationalism um, to kind of get you fame? So we talked to Lee Ving, yeah, you know, a, a few months ago, and we asked him about was this a put on? He's like, yeah, it was just no one. He said, but a lot of people didn't get the joke, right? No, it was like, and stick. I was saying, let's start a war, and there were skinheads thinking yeah. I really wanted them to start a war. Obviously, it's just tongue in cheek. Um, there's a lot of punk bands like that from the 1980s. So I think uh, I think it all depends on where you grew up, how you view punk. Oh yeah, like um, I'm, I really liked your book. I thought it was a lot of fun to read. Um, but it's definitely coming from a DC straight edge point of view. And I think if someone from where I grew up wrote the book, it would be more of a drunk punk type of bands. Um, we love Minor Threat and all those bands, but I think Fear, where I grew up, is um, is a big influence on a lot of us. Yeah, well, I, I'd say that, I mean, what it is, I mean, it, it can't help but to be written in part from a DC perspective. Um, but what I, I, I would say that it's, it's not just DC as being primary focus. I mean, I think San Francisco is, is crucial. Um, especially if you want to look for the political stuff, you'll find it in abundance in San Francisco. Um, uh, and so, so, but I mean, yeah, some of it, some of this is told through the eyes of a, a person who participated in the Washington DC punk scene, but also is, you know, supposedly a trained and, and serious professional historian. <laughs> go out and actually, you know, look in archives and verify um, what you think was, you know, going on back then. And, that, you know, that was one of the most exciting things about doing the research for the book was that, you know, there was like, I'd be like, wow, I didn't know that was happening. Yeah. You know, there was some sort of, major, you know, concert being played in, you know, some a place like Tulsa. And I'd be like, I don't, I don't remember ever, you know, thinking about that. So, you know, I think in some ways there is a perspective um, that's that's partially my background and my own experiences. But I, I, I would say that I also I think I see these things looking back um, and going through the zines and going through the correspondence between people um, where I can see, you know, uh, what is the you know, the kind of what some people call a positive punk that D.C. starts to get, um, you know, associated with. I will, though, point out, I think we talked about this last time we talked, was that, you know, um, a lot of people think because of Fugazi. Um, probably being the most famous late 80s band that that really, you know, still s- stuck to the DIY stuff. Um, but if you were to look at someone like an Ian McKay, the lead singer of Minor Threat, he was apolitical. Um, and he really did not, he, he really disassociated himself from politics. Um, you know, for him, it was just personal politics, the way you treated another person on the individual level um, that mattered, um, not not, you know, broad political change or anything like that. You just mentioned the zines and you talked about them earlier too. It struck me, and and again, this is just, you know, again, from a layperson's perspective, that have we had another type of media that, uh, and hip hop comes to mind a little bit where you've got the different tenets of hip hop, Mm -hmm. you know, um, but it seems like there was such a uh, close relationship between the zines and and the bands I'm not sure that we've had that before or since. If if there is something like it, it's, it's probably being done online. Um, and, you know, I mean, this is the, the history here is that, you know, you didn't have <laughs> the Internet. Um, what you had was the, the, you had the zines to communicate and you also had the cassette tape to distribute mu- music with. Um, and, um, you know, so you, m- most most of us were getting the music by, you know, seeing something in a zine and ad for a, a band's album or, or a seven inch single or something like that. And, you know, you, you 
stuff your dollar bills into the envelope, send it off, and then expect a return. And usually it worked. Um, uh, you know, and that was another thing about it that people kind of ignore. I remember kids would take cassette tapes that were uh, by famous bands. And I don't know what these things are called, but you know the indent things that yeah. are at the t- like the, the tamp, yeah. People, yeah. What are they? Yeah, yeah. So those things, um, what they, what you do is take, you know, pieces of paper and, and shove them down in there so oh, that yeah. you could over it. So, you know, kids were recording over over the arena rock bands that they, they were, you know, in, in large part making fun of. We would put scotch tape over them and it worked just as good oh, yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. There you quite, go. Quite uh, the savings. Yeah. You know, and speaking of, I guess thinking about the DIY aspect of it, and again, and thinking about today, it seems like because anybody could DIY today, and because of the advent of internet and social media, I, I don't know that we could, it'd be that easy for anybody to be punk in the sense that it was in the 1980s, uh, either because of so much noise out there, uh, because it's not easy to be provocative now, um, because anyone can DIY. So what's so special about DIY? And the DIY you can do, I mean, this show is DIY. The DIY you can do is fairly professional sounding, if you know, if you've got, you're clever enough. Can we have punk? Do we have punk today in, in any sense resembling the 1980s at all? Yeah, I mean, this is where you'll probably get the charge of old fogey. Um, <laughs> not, not on this show. Uh, not on this show. Keep up with stuff. But um, no, I think there. I, I, I think something really happens in about 1985, um, and what that and the the key uh, event is that Husker Du will sign with Warner Brothers, um, and um, it's really funny because I would read Bob Mould getting who was the lead singer of Husker Du getting interviewed in zines, and he'd be like, "You never sell out to a corporate re- record label. You never do that. Just wrong. You have to stay independent. You know they'll they'll screw around with your art and all that sort of stuff." And um, you know, of course. There we go. You know, in 1985 into 1986, they're signing with Warner Brothers, which is the major music corporation that's out there. Um, so, you know, I think that and then one of the, the way that I, you know, open the book with is is to look at someone like a Kurt Cobain, who clearly came out of the Seattle um, scene of the early 1980s, um, as did the lead singer of Mud Honey. Um, he came he came through that scene as well. Um and when, when, you know, they break big in 91, um, uh, Kurt Cobain is asked the question about, you know, well, like what, what's, what's important about your music? And he says something like along the lines of, well, you know, I hope that people will start listening to the stuff that, like, and I think what he meant was the underground and, and the punk stuff prior to the, prior to 1991. And, um, you know, as I point out, it's like, well, why would people look for it when it's being handed to them? the form of this thing called grunge or, you know, you know, pop, pop punk, Green Day, all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's stuff that at that point in time, I think that, that you're right. There was a real difference. There was no, there was no selling out uh, in the, in the, in the early 1980s, because I think, you know, bands were seen as kind of a threat to the music industry, but by 1990, by the 1990s, you know, this stuff is breaking huge um, and it's easy to find, right? I mean, the, the corporations are going to just, you know, throw themselves at anything that seems somehow new or kid-based or wh- whatever you want to call it. I think you raise an interesting point, and one of the objectives of our show, although young people aren't going to listen to our show because we you know, cater to a more <laughs> middle-aged uh, audience, um, is we feel there is an importance to understand the history and the evolution of you know, these various media, including music and punk rock, and oftentimes to my daughters, uh, you know, much to my chagrin, they'll be praising some piece of current media, and I'll think, this is a knockoff of now. Look, all art is derivative, sure, 
But sometimes it's literally a knockoff and sometimes it's oh, yeah. a sample. It literally contains a sample of some piece of music we grew up with. And I'm like, all right, sit down, ladies. We have to have a talk about where this came from and where they got it from and so on. As a history professor, sir, we understand, you know, we're talking about uh, political history, you know, and so on. That idea that uh, there's a danger in not knowing history. But why is it important to know about the history of pop culture or? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that I think that people generally find meaning and something that they find that they emotionally attach to in music. And so studying the history of music, you're studying the history of, you know, people's, I think, values and what, you know, what they're, what they're looking for. Um, uh, And, and again, that's what makes the early 1980s so much, so different. Um, It's really, you know, at least in the punk scene, because it is again, the rejection of, you know, the stardom, that someone like a Madonna represents, um, right. Who would, who would always want it. I mean, she started from the underground to a certain extent. Um, but you know, kind of always wanted to become famous and clearly wanted that. Um, or, you know, you know, the big, the other big iconic figure being Michael Jackson, you know, who, who basically saves the music industry, um, in 83 to 84. Um, and then is welcomed onto the, you know, lawn of the white house by Ronald Reagan, who, you know, basically cheers him on and says, he's a great guy. Um, and now, you know, as we, in retrospect, <laughs> not looking good. Um, so, you know, I mean, I think that there, there was, there, I, I just think that people, um, or the, the people in the punk scene just never imagined that, that they would break big, um, and, you know, become a, a phenomenon that was, you know, seen as, uh, uh something that was, you know, cool. Uh, and marketable. I'm going to extrapolate from what you just said that we should keep doing our show, Ray. It's, you know, it's, it provides some value there for folks to, I I think we're doing all right. I do have to say, uh, this might be a little controversial and it's going to piss off some people, but please, which other band are you going to toss under the bus? I'm going to go ahead and toss these guys under the bus right now. After the last time we spoke, I did go back and listen to all the clash albums and I enjoyed them all. I think they're great albums. But do you agree that that uh, they're the blueprint that Rancid used to get famous? What? Oh, I you know actually I've never. I, is is there evidence of that? It seems like if you go back and listen to them all again, it's like Rancid went back and just cherry picked stuff out of the Clash catalog instead of if we put on a big mohawk and play like the Clash, we can be on TV all day long and make millions of dollars. Yeah, you, I guess, you know, granted, yeah, sure. I, I, but I guess I'd also say Green Day. Yeah, um, you once know, again. Green Day, I, I, I wasn't even sure if it was an American band. He has this kind of <laughs> British accent yeah. that he sings with, which I think is mimicking, you know, The Clash. Hmm. Um, uh, more, more so The Clash than, say, The Sex Pistols. But um, I've never heard that theory. I mean, that, that they were actually um, consciously uh, changing their image in order to try to sound like The Clash. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, if you take Operation Ivy, you know, they've got uh-huh. that cool sound and that's where Tim comes from, Lint, whatever you want to call him. And, you know, going back and listening to The Clash again, I got a strong Rancid vibe out of those albums. And having listened to both Rancid and The Clash now, I get the vibe that they were like, you know what, let's just rip it off and become famous. I think you're probably right. And don't forget, most of those bands um, came through the Gilman Street Project which was a project that was created by Tim Yohannan, who was the editor of Maximum Rock and Roll, which was one of the most important magazine zines um, across the country. And, you know, what they had at at Gilman Street was that they basically took took over a building. Um, They they said, you know, there's no alcohol, um, no no violence. 
Um, and, and it was, you know, a, a seemingly very lively um, sort of, you know, setting. That's about 86 or so that it really takes off, um, if I'm not wrong. Um, the, um, and, and, you know, the bands that you've just mentioned, the ones besides Rancid, they were a part of that scene. Um, so mm-hmm. it's really interesting to think that in some ways, you know, that became a kind of farming ground. Right. For the major labels to look for. That's what I think you increasingly see. Um, and that's one of the things that I didn't recognize when I when I kind of was involved in this stuff. And I left the scene really in 1985. Um, but, you know, the, the, the thing that I've that I, I realized is that you you see this method of like I call it the farming ground method. Right. Is that you, you start looking for stuff that's bubbling up from below and start deciding how you're going to market and commodify it. Um, and that happens increasingly through from 85 onwards. And, and the bands you, you cited, yeah, they're all there. I think they, I don't know, I don't know if they're conscious about it. Like if they're sitting there going, remember, you, you got to like the clash or else we're not going to break through. But I do think that there's certainly people see an opportunity, wise to Husker do as well, um, mm-hmm. that maybe there could be a kind of poppy punk sort of sound, um, which I think the clash um, had, uh, especially later in their uh, career. Um, and that I think, you know, once again, you start seeing stuff that's being done at the grassroots and then it suddenly breaks big. Yeah. I'm thinking Husker do also, there's a couple of bands. I want to say like, uh, screaming trees reminds me a little bit of them. They were huge in the nineties. I think they ripped them off a little bit too. Eh, That could just be more of a homage to them. Not a straight rip off. Yeah. I mean, I would, you could say it's a compliment, right? Yeah. More of a compliment in that (laughs) case. I, and I think that there's a lot of people who reckon, uh, who are involved in this stuff throughout, you know, from 80 to 85, who recognize that it was, it was gelling something and that when people came after that, um, that it became a source, um, uh, both of inspiration for, for people doing stuff in the late eighties and into the, into the nineties when the stuff, you know, breaks huge mm-hmm. alternative rock <laughs> alternative to what? <laughs> um, yeah punk has to get a new name if it's going to become commercially viable that's how True. it works yeah what's it going to be i don't know what comes next but first it had it was new wave and then it was alternative and then grunge and nirvana was was never a grunge band they're a punk band i don't know how that happened but that was ridiculous to change their genre from punk to grunge <laughs> still i can't wait to see well, what it'll, comes it'll next be- you get one good band, and they do the generic formula to get it yeah. to the masses. Well, it's time yep. for it to be punk again. That's where yep. we're at, right? And own it. Yep. But but I am, you know, speaking about things coming around like that. I, I guess the one thing that was interesting to me was you you point out that you know we had these protest songs in the '60s, then in the '70s, you know, following Vietnam, there was a shift in sort of the you know culture. What would have been the I guess the counterculture or this that would otherwise you know sort of a you know rally against the government became more subdued, you know, this take it easy sort of mentality. And then in the 80s, when we have punk rock, we now, instead of being the folks that go on the street and protest, we just uh, somehow through, you know, proxy, use these bands to vent this frustration. And any energy that might have had us, you know, marching on Pennsylvania Avenue has us now in a club, maybe, you know, just listening to, you know, the Minutemen, you know, shouting about something. So it seems like there's a move Maybe that same energy is still there, but there's a move from activism in the 80s. There was activism. You just didn't hear about it because mm-hmm. it was like uh, the news wasn't going to cover it. And, and I, I believe in Kevin's book, he does touch on some of those times when they took to the streets. Yeah, no, there was what was called the war chest tours. Um, and it started, not surprisingly, in San Francisco. 
um, you know, a, a haven for activism. Um, and what what kids were doing would they they would basically kind of have a protest, but it was totally spontaneous. Um, Got to remember by the 80s, a lot of protest becomes kind of formulaic, especially if people are going to get arrested. You actually have a conversation with the police. Mm. You say, this is what we'll do. We'll go and sit down and then you can you know come and pick and take us off and, and shove us into the vans. Um, <laughs> so, you know, there was a reaction to that on the part of a lot of punk kids. And one of the people who's, um, I think, a key figure in this is a guy by the name of D- David Solnit. Um, has a more famous sister named Rebecca, you probably have heard of before. Um, and, uh, you know, he basically says to himself at one point in time, he's into punk rock, and he's, but he's also becoming much more political. And he says, you know, one of the things that we don't want to do is let's not protest against the government. Let's protest against the corporations. Let's go, let's go after those guys who basically are manufacturing nuclear arms. Um, and let's, you know, basically hit the streets um, and and try to, you know, shut down those companies. Of course, they can't do it. But you see this activism. It's a kind of punk activism, right? It's a D- DIY activism. It's, it's a rejection of some of the kind of staged sort of civil disobedience um, that's being done throughout the 1980s. Um, and where you see this especially is at the Democratic Party convention, um, more so than at the Republican Party convention, um, that they have this kind of fairly large protest that goes on, and it also is <clears throat> a concert uh, that the Dead Kennedys, Millions of Dead Cops, and all these other bands play. And then the kids kind of go on their marches, um, kind of taking the inspiration. And so there was activism there, um, but it was really not paid attention to. Um, in part because it went against the narrative, right? Which is that punk rock was this silly, stupid, violent sort of thing. And, and you know, God forbid that any kids would be thinking about politics or anything like that within it. Um, you know, but they they were. I mean, and and again, I think what Solnit was arguing, and I think he was right on this, is he said, you know, these kids have rejected corporate music. Why don't they reject, you know, corporate manufacturers of the nuclear of nuclear arms that are going to kill them um, and are a bigger threat than you know th- this crappy music that's being uh, you know p- uh, produced by the by the major guys. So there was it was there, um, but again, you know, not really fully recognized. That's back to your thing about history, right? Is that historians when they're, when they're at their best are not just, you know, telling a standard, you know, narrative timeline sort of thing. They're looking for stuff that, that actually, in fact, sort of goes against, um, I think people's expectations about what was happening in the past. And that's one of the things that, you know, I think as a historian, you you keep trying to recover stuff that very often is forgotten about because it's so simple to forget about, you know, things. Yeah. And and obviously, again, me just growing up in the 1980s, listening to music, I, I, fell for all the tropes, you know, that uh, it wasn't unintellectual, which you point out in your book, there's a whole lot of folks that were self-taught and smart. Um, It was, you know, all of it was pro-drugs when, you know, groups like uh, Minor Threat were the opposite of that. So I was, yeah, I was a victim of that. Um, What I wanted to say is that those who have been listening, the book isn't just about punk rock. It covers the political landscape of mm -hmm. the time. Also, it goes back and forth. So it's a really cool history lesson in politics as well as in the history of punk rock. And I think Kevin did a great job writing this book. Thanks. I appreciate that. Yeah, It seems like what we need to remember about the 1980s punk rock scene is something we didn't even know about the 1980s punk rock scene. Right. I think every time you said, you know, I was taken in by this sort of stuff. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's amazing to go back to, to, to stuff that I remember at the time. One of those figures I remember was a woman named Serena Dank, who had an organization called Parents of Punkers. 
And it was this idea that like these kids were kind of being, it was almost like people, she thought that they had become a part of a cult society. So they were going to, you know, tease them out of that and help them help young people reject this horrible cult. It, you saw, you saw it in, in a figure like that. You also saw it in a lot of TV shows and movies. I mean, there was the famous Quincy episode where the allegation is made that punk rock causes people to kill one another. Um, there was a, I mean, if you ever get a chance for, for your show, this would be a great thing to look at. Um, there's this god awful movie called Class of 1984, um, which is had. I love that movie. Yeah, you, you remember you it? I do. I've seen it. I probably have it around here somewhere. He probably has it on VHS tape. It's awful. You should do. You guys should do something about it. It's really. It's like it's it's unbelievably uh, uh, offensive. But again, <laughs> it is. In this case, the punks turn out to rape a pregnant woman. Oh boy. Um, who's the who's the wife of of the good guy in the story? Um. They, they're going out murdering people, you know, supposedly constantly, you know, they're armed. And I mean, it's just unbelievable. The sad thing is that I uncovered the fact that there were some um, L.A. punk kids who were asked to, you know, be in the movie, mm. um, if it, you know, that kind of local color or whatever you right. want to call it. So so, I mean, that 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 representation of what punk was about was was prevalent. Um, it was, it was everywhere. And, and, it, you know, I mean, it further angered, I think a lot of young people who felt that their, you know, their voices weren't being heard or at least not being heard rightly. Um, and so I think that that's an, another thing that, that I think is, is important to, to remember is, is how bad the treatment of punk really was back in, the, back in the time. And what was it about? I don't think I do this to my children, but there's something in this, Ray and I last spoke uh, on a recent episode with Ernie Gygax, son of the famous Gary Gygax, who created the Dungeons & Dragons. They were targeted yeah. by Christian groups as being satanic. Uh, we spoke with Michael Sweet about how heavy metal groups were targeted by, you know, Christian groups as being satanic. There was a big satanic panic throughout the 80s. Why were adults trying to ruin so many of the things that teenagers loved? We don't, I don't think we do that to our kids. I may... You know, my, my daughter will play me a thing on Twitch or something. Isn't this hilarious? And I'll say, no, it's actually not funny. Watch Monty Python or watch, you know, it seems like nowadays we don't try to demonize the things our children love in the way that adults did back then. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think that there's this like, you know, perception again, like back to the class of 1984 where, or, or some of the other things I talked about, where the, the, the allegation seemingly is that this is like a cult. And I think there was really widespread fear, especially throughout the 1970s and going into the 1980s, that there were these kind of cult-like organizations that were recruiting young, naive people mm. in the ranks. So, I mean, I think that there was a kind of, you know, I, I, I suppose something of a basis to it. Um, but on the other hand, you know, it certainly cut down on the. But, you know, I, I would say that when I looked through zines um, and thought about my own personal experience, um, there were parents who were actually encouraging their kids to do this stuff. I mean, one of my friends um, who eventually formed a band um, called Dag Nasty, which is probably his most famous band, mm. um, his, his father let us use the basement, not just for practice, but for shows. Um, you know, and so he encouraging of it. And, and my mom was actually encouraged by it, um, in part because I, I started buying all my clothes from thrift stores. So she was like, <laughs> <laughs> didn't have a lot of money. It's like, okay, if you want to, you know, buy that stuff, that's cool. It means I don't have to pay for it. Um, but she also said to me at one point in time, she said, you know, the, the kids that you were bringing over to the house seemed like really good guys, you know, you know, they were like nice and, and, you know, they were kind and caring. He, I, my, my mom always remembered this uh, time when um, the bass player of my band came over to pick me up to go drive me to practice. 
And he said to me, you might want to put a coat on. It's a little chilly out there. I'm like, Lord, right? You know, this is like the angry, aggressive punk rocker. And so I think, you know, yeah, I think that there, there were people in the elder generation who recognized something more positive was developing. But, um, you know, it, it, I, you know, I, I can't answer your question in some ways, right? Because I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't know exactly why there was this rampant fear. Um, again, I'd say it probably goes back to fears of cults and things like that that dominated the 1970s. But you know, I, I can't be sure of it. I, you know, I mean, I suppose it's you know, fearing that your kid's going to get involved in a in a dangerous situation was was probably you know the the, the fear behind a lot of that. Yeah. So, what should punk rock from the 1980s be remembered for? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're asking me like, to read the book. You can be like that timeline thing. Book. Read the book. Um, you know, I, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a big one, isn't it? Um, well, I, I guess, you know, the, to, to show that there was at least a tendency in punk that took seriously um, politics as much as it took seriously music. Um, I think, you know, looking, looking back at, at young people kind of creating their own culture is something that I think is, is unique. And the fact that this, you know, again, uh, you know, it, it's stuff that's happening in different mediums too, is something that we haven't really talked about that much. Um, you know, you, this is the t- period of time in which you see the rise of cyberpunk, um, in novel. Um, this right. is a, it's important to look at some of the artists that were associated with the movement. Most famously, who's getting his recognition now is someone like Raymond Pettibone, right. who was the brother of the guitarist in Black Flag. Um, so, I mean, you know, that it was an array of activities. It wasn't just simply, you know, uh, performance. Um, and, and I think, you know, what else I want to show is that, you know, through, through engaging in that, a lot of people did become more politically aware, more um, kind of, you know, getting a perspective on what they thought was kind of wrong with society at this point in time. So I, I, I guess that would that would maybe answer the question. But like I said, it is it's really difficult to condense mm. the book to like, you know, one thing or anything like that. And in part because it, it, it it's a book about kind of about pluralism, right, that there were many, many participants sure. going in, in different directions and using different mediums to express themselves. Kevin, thank you so much for your time. We wish you the best of uh, luck with the book. Of course, folks should run out and, uh, you know, buy. Are there there things called bookstores anymore? I don't know. (laughs) Um, I think there are, but certainly there's a way to get it electronically. I'm positive about that. And uh, look for Kevin's book, We're Not Here to Entertain, Punk Rock, Ronald Reagan, and the Real Culture War of 1980s America. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks to you guys. Kevin's book is great for so many reasons, and you learned so much. And one thing we learned from our conversation with Kevin and reading the book is, much like everything else we've discussed on the show, what happened during the 1980s, you know, with regard to punk rock, can't be replicated. It hasn't happened since, and it's certainly not going to happen today. There was something special and magical about the decade, including, as you pointed out, the relationship between what was happening politically and the music. You know, these things just, you know, uh, one birthed the other. So that's what I learned. <laughs> that's what I learned. <laughs> but have we proven anything? Or is that what we've proven? Of course. Of course we've proven know. something. We have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt oh, okay. that the DIY punk rock ethic of the 1980s will never be duplicated and never was before the 80s. Yes. All right. Another in the W column for the idiots. I think so. I agree. All right, so hey, we will talk to you next time on The Idiots. See ya.